Hello and welcome to Sabbath School Quarterly Commentary. This is your Pure Gold Commentary Podcast. And as the name suggests, this is a commentary. It's not a study guide. So grab your study guide if you're not driving or running while listening to us. My name is Morgan Vincent. And in this week's episode, we have Matt Parra joining us. And we're going to be discussing the theme, Indestructible Hope. Matt, welcome. It's great to have you on today. Yeah, it's really cool to be able to come and talk about this week's lesson with you, man. Thanks, yeah. for, uh, thanks for letting me do it. It's good. Glad you can join. And we're going to have a good conversation and discussion about what it means to have indestructible hope. And is it something that originates within ourselves or is it something that comes from God? And we're going to be looking at a couple of key books and figures within scripture. But I guess to start with, we want to look at the Apostle Paul. And this has been a recurring person that we've looked at within the quarter so far is that Paul was someone who very much, he did experience tribulations and suffering and he was in many a crucible but he was able to glory through them and he was able to recognize and he was able to write something. And Matt, are you there in, are you there in Romans five? I'm in Romans five. And what's the verse that we're starting? Can you go, can you read for us verses three and four? This is one of Paul's main little passages where he speaks on how he would hope within tribulation. Yeah, absolutely, bro. So he says, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. Look, I wanted to say that I think it's impressive how Paul not only spoke these words, but he lived them. He talks in one place about the things that he physically suffered because he testified of Jesus. He talks about being physically bludgeoned. He talks about being shipwrecked. He talks about being stoned, whipped, This guy, Mm. and this is just a tax upon him physically, the pleasures and comforts of the world that he was deprived because of the commitment that he had to God. And then his disposition towards that is just impressive. And it shows that he had hope that transcended his circumstances. And he serves as a really impressive example Mm -hmm. to me. Someone who I don't look at and go, boy, because he did it, I can do it. Me personally, I look at him and I'm like, man, I can't, I don't get that. Mm. That's just too much. But yeah, just looking at the text, he says, we exalt in our tribulations. What? Mm -hmm. Like, when's the last time you did that? Mm, Not for a very long time, if maybe ever. I don't know. Yeah, a long time. Or what does your Bible say? I'm reading the NASB. Oh, yeah, let me go there. Yeah, because the NASB says exalt. I guess there's other ways to communicate the same thought. But last night, my wife and I, we received really good news from family. Mm -hmm. And she started dancing, crazy, fun wild dancing and she was exalting glory and she was glory. glory yeah she was glorying in the good news and i said to her hey let's not count our eggs till they're hatched right and but then i said but you know what let's just enjoy it while we have it you yeah. know because life doesn't always come with these kinds of highs and so mm. let's just ex- let's just glory let's just be happy and so he's flipping the script here a bit and saying look you have reason you have cause to glory in suffering and then as you as we read, we know why. Because he says, knowing that tribulation brings perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. So one thing leads to another. So I can know in my mind that when I'm suffering, according to Paul's teaching here, that will develop in me a perseverance, a strength, a character strength. Then that character strength will be tested and proven and then I'll have hope. So that'll increase my ability to hope, physical suffering. It kind of makes sense. I want to, just to frame what we're talking about, I think it's worthwhile 
zooming out and remembering this great controversy that each of us are in. And before we go to Job, to begin with, I think it's worthwhile looking at the suffering that you go through, Matt, or that I go through, the crucible that we find ourselves in. There is a time as humans we can tend to throw a little pity party. And, oh, it's me. And we can feel as though the whole world and universe is against us. And it's quite childish in a sense. And we'll get to that a little later. But when we consider this great controversy that we're in, and we've been looking at this in weeks gone past, that there is Christ, there is Satan, there's the, the tension, the conflict that's going on there. But the purpose of this, like God has a purpose, and it's so that we can be remade into his image. And we're going to get there a little later, but let's maybe go to... I want to interrupt you. You used the word, it's a bit childish. You Mm. used that phrase. It's a bit childish to forget about the fact that we're in the midst of a great controversy between good and evil. And there's uh, there's collateral damage because of that. There's consequences. And Mm -hmm. I like what Paul says here when he says, knowing that tribulation brings, and then he lists the benefits of difficulty and challenge and suffering. So he doesn't say feeling, perceiving at the moment. He says, knowing, and this is a call in a sense to be an adult and to control how you feel by what you know. I guess that's not mm-hmm. the best way to say it. Yeah, you yeah. know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Like, you, okay, as you grow up, you decide that you're not going to be controlled by how you feel and you're not going to let how you feel define your reality. Mm. You're going you're gonna to think rationally and reasonably. And I think that's what, this, that's what Paul is, in essence, calling us to in the text. He's like, knowing. Like you can comprehend, you mm. can understand, you can reason to this conclusion, and therefore you can exalt. But you're not going to exalt because it feels good. You're not going to glory in your pain and your suffering because it feels good. And this is something that I think about personally all the time, is you can, by faith, believe that what you're going through is going to be ultimately good for you, or for the world, or for someone's salvation. You can believe that, you can trust that's the case, but you don't feel that's the case. Mm. Being an adult means that you're not controlled by your feelings. You don't Define reality by how you feel. You choose to believe what you know makes sense and what you can reason reason to. And yeah, I don't know if you've ever met people who've gone through like a world-class case of suffering. I have. And those are oftentimes some of the most beautiful, transcendent, otherworldly kinds of humans that I've ever met. I met a young man who survived the genocide in Rwanda in the early 1990s. And man, you just felt like you were in the presence of greatness Mm. when you're in the presence of this man because of what he'd endured and suffered. And it's not to say that God ever wants anyone to have to suffer through what he suffered through. That suffering in itself was a good thing that happened. There was an evil, horrible, terrible, tragic thing. But the effect on him was that he became someone that was more beautiful, more amazing, and more impressive than almost anybody I've ever met. Mm. And so that was the eventual consequence. And so Paul is in essence saying to him or anyone like him or all of us, like, realize that there is a good that will come out of your suffering, that can come out of it. And so, Mm. but you have to know it. You you trust that that it's going to be the case. And I think, I don't know about you, man, but I think that what he's saying is commonsensical. Do you need an inspired prophet to come to this conclusion? Probably not. Hmm. You just need enough life experience and a brain. And tribulation brings about perseverance. Yeah, if you're going to survive, if you're just not going to give up, persevering, perseverance develops your character. It's resistance that trains muscles. It's suffering that trains character. And then he says, once your character's developed sufficiently, you're going to hope. Now, of course, you have hope in something more when you're in a situation that's not pleasant. When you're in a situation that's pleasant, you don't really hope for anything more because you're just satisfied with where you are, mm. with where you are right? Do, do you think as well, Paul, in a sense, is maybe looking back in hindsight, where he's like, 
which is why hope is listed last. It's almost as though that's an impression I get is that he's almost looking back and think, okay, in the midst of all of this, I hope throughout it, but now he's come to this conclusion of there actually is this indestructible hope that God's given me. It's amazing because usually it's suffering that destroys, not usually, I don't want to say that, but I've seen situations where suffering and difficulty, what he says here, tribulation, destroys people's hope. But he's actually saying the contrary, that if you persevere through the tribulation and your character is developed sufficiently, that's going to increase your hope. And I wonder if that's not because, as you say, he's looking back, he's reflecting, and he's realizing how much closer to God he got through the suffering and tribulation and difficulty. Because what else did he have? But to claim, Mother Teresa said, I, this is a quote I heard of hers, she said that you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Who was better equipped to say that than that woman? Suffering the deprivations that she suffered in the midst of the poverty of India and grappling with the worst of humanity and the worst of humanity suffering. And she's spending her whole life just giving, 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 loving, blessing. Mm. And she's like, I've got nothing, but I've got Jesus. And I've realized through all of my suffering that, and, and all of the suffering that's around me, that Jesus is all that I need. So that increased her hope in Jesus. Yep. That's all she had. Mm. And I think part of the problem sometimes why maybe people don't have this indestructible hope is that Jesus isn't everything to them. He might be in, in maybe an added bonus or you know, something that they experience sporadically through the week or through their life. But if they were to genuinely and truly have Christ as first and last and everything and in their lives, then it would, they'd be able to reframe what they're going through. Hey, let's go to, let's go to Job. Let's do it, man. Because Job is, yeah, it's a good book. It's an insightful book, but I guess there's a lot of lessons in here that we want to, yeah, look at in terms of yeah, framing, setting where we are at with things, because it seems as though God is permitting some things to happen here to Job. There's a great controversy going on, good and evil, Christ and Satan. Maybe I'll just read Matt with Job here. Yeah, just a couple of verses. So from verse one, it says here that there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil speaks of the possessions and the goods that he has. Then there's kind of a plot twist. What's the plot twist? What goes on here in terms of what God permits? I don't think that the Bible ever points. This is the situ This is the person who more than anyone in the Bible is pointed to as a guy who had it good. Like he mm. had it all, right? There's What else could he have ever wanted? He is in a right relationship with God. And when you're positioned correctly in your relationship with God, there's going to be consequences to that, right? Like Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, it talks about if you keep these laws, this is going to be the consequence. It's going to be for your good, for your mm. good, for your good. So you could be an atheist and keep the De Deuteronomy laws, and you're going to be blessed. So he's got this, but he loves God, and he's following God truly, and then he's going to enjoy all of the consequential blessings that come from that. There's a myriad of blessings. Then he's extraordinarily rich and successful in this world. He's got a bunch of kids. Mm-hmm. He's got a wife. It seems like their home is relatively stable. This guy's got everything you could possibly want, and he's living free, prosperously. And yeah, the plot twist is that uh, the devil doesn't like it. <laughs> yeah. and, and basically, the devil who is intent on proving that God is not just or good is just in the presence of God, inferring some pretty negative things about God by basically saying, hey, listen, the only reason why this guy down on earth who's prospering has any affinity for you mm. is because of what you do for him. So it's a works-based arrangement. He knows he's going to get some stuff that he wants from you, but you aren't worth following 
just for yourself. Like you as a person are not worth following. You as a being are not worth caring for. You as a being are not worth obeying and following unless you give someone blessings and privileges. And you may God point to Job. And those of you guys who know the story know what I'm referring to. You know, the devil could say Job is pointed to by God as a faithful example of a person who won't follow Satan. And then Satan, just his retort is, well, no one would follow you for your own sake, but just because you give them benefits and privileges. Mm. And then God decides to say, okay, well, that's not true. I disagree with you. I think that Job is the kind of person who would follow me just for me because of his own integrity, because he's a true believer, a genuine believer, and because I am worth believing in and everything that he has is in your power. Mm. So Job gets crushed and gets devastated. Mm. gets everything taken away. So... I guess it's worthy to make the point that God essentially says, look, Satan, you can do whatever you want to him, except one thing, which is take his life. The book of Job, time doesn't avail us to unpack the story of Job, but it, it, in essence, it's this gripping journey that he goes on where he loses, yeah, so much, but yet he holds on and, and you know. He maintains his integrity. Yeah. He maintains his commitment to God, even against the urging of his friends and mm-hmm. his wife He's physically in pain. He's lost his children, so he's in emotional turmoil. When you're physically suffering and that physical suffering won't abate, it won't go away, Mm. it messes with your heart. And then you've got externalities, friends who you trust, who you love. They're not supporting you, not in the long run. And your wife herself is turned against you. This guy, he goes, it's basically the sharpest example in the Bible of going from one extreme to the other in his life. Like in just a short span of time, He goes from having everything to having nothing except for suffering, misery, despondency, and and he's just in the pit. Mm. And I think that this is just filled with lessons, filled with insights, but in the context of lasting hope, hope that is indefatigable and I like that word, indefatigable. Yeah, it can't be fatigued. Did you make that word up? No, it's a real word. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it's with Job, he's someone that, Yeah, he valued his family and the blessings that God gave, but nothing, you read through Job and it's, Job knew he had everything because he had God and God had him and come what may. And it's a worthwhile point because sometimes we can just almost flippantly just reference Romans 8, 28. And we know like someone might be going through like a really terrible situation. It's like, you just need to know brother that like all All things things work together for good. (laughs) But it's worthwhile to note that we can learn a lot about the text by what it says and what it doesn't say. Like the text doesn't say, and we know that all good things work together for good. Like it says that all things, good, bad, indifferent, everything, like it works together for good. And you very much see that in the story of Job is that he's realizing that everything that's, that happened to him was working together for good. Yeah, that's right. And, and yeah. in Romans 8, 20, or 28, it doesn't say all things are good. That's something it doesn't say. <laughs> yeah. In Job's scenario... Yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard the saying. I, I read this in a book called The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, and he says that the deeper you sorrow, the more deeply you can feel joy. Because he says that the same that you carry your reservoir of pain, you carry your reservoir of joy. So he says like your capacity to feel is expanded when you're going through difficulty. He says it's a carve. He said suffering and difficulty have a carving influence on your soul. So that you become, yeah, better equipped to enjoy the pleasures and joys of life. Now, I've experienced that to an extent. You go through a hard time, a hard experience, you hate your life for a six-month period of time, a seven-month period of time, but you hang on to hope. Mm. And then after that period of time, you're really glad that it happened. And you're like, man, the lessons that I learned from that, as painful as it was, have made me a happier, 
more contented and better human being. And this is never to say that the suffering itself is good. And as we see in the story of Job, we know that it wasn't, God didn't approve of what Satan was doing. God didn't approve of Satan being in heaven, arguing against the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God and indicting him before the rest of the universe. God did not approve of Satan's desire to overthrow Job's faith and to disprove God in the process. Like he didn't approve of the physical, he didn't approve of any of it, but he permitted it. And uh, yeah, he would permit it only because if Job chooses to hang on to hope, then, then it'll ultimately, God can work it out for good. He can take the tragic scenario and work it out for good. I think that's something to note and to take account of. Like there, as we said before we were recording, that God in the context of the great controversy permits things that he does not approve of. And there's lots of reasons for that. Some people want to say, well, this is the reason for that. No, there's lots of reasons for Mm. that. And one reason that this week's lesson is pointing out is that physical suffering can serve as a disciplinary or reformatory tool that makes you better. And it's not that God's like sitting up in heaven like this divine sadist. He's like, yeah, I'm going to make you suffer. Yeah, it's going to be for your good. That's the determinist view of God, right? Like Like the Greek view of God. The Calvinist, I don't want to say the Calvinist view, but yeah, like the determinist view of God Mm -hmm. where he's determined everything. That's not the biblical view of God. In the Bible, time and chance happens to everyone. There's a great controversy. The devil's active and persecuting and causing pain and misery. And God, he doesn't approve of, of the evil and the suffering and the pain, but he permits it because of free will and because he knows that he can work through it if people allow him to work through it and he can bring good out of it. And it's painful for God to watch. It's painful for God to see. And he doesn't yeah, it's not his perfect will that we'd be in sin in the first place, but uh, he permits it and can work through it. I think that's really important for me to remember. Mm. I think it's a really, yeah. Yeah, that's some good discussion we've had on Job. I want to look at another Old Testament example of the times of Jeremiah and when God's people were, were in captivity, led into captivity, and a verse that many, I don't want to say all, uh, <laughs> you know, you, when people are like, you all know the story I'm talking about, and there's always that person that's, nope, don't know that story. Do I but, pretend like I know it so yeah. I don't feel... So most of us are aware of that that promise in Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you. Right. And I actually know the old King James Version. I know the thoughts that I think, yeah. he says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. But it's... Basically, you know, let's, let's quote the text, because these guys, in case someone doesn't know it, so God there's says... There's always that one person that doesn't yeah, know Yeah, in Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 11 going down to verse 13, he says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, they're thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. And then it says, you'll go and you'll call upon me. I'll hear you. You'll cry to me and I'll answer you. You will seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Mm. Yeah. So we take that verse, we relish its Mm. uh, encouragement and just hearing it makes you feel good. God thinks good thoughts towards me. He wants to give me a future and a hope an expected end, and uh, he'll listen to me when mm. I call out to him. But you're mentioning that yeah, we don't I, really relate. We don't really understand the context within which that's mm, said. Yeah, and when I began to understand the context of that verse in that little passage, that verse took on a far greater meaning and far greater significance that, yeah, because it's nice if you just read it and it's, oh, wow, that's really nice. But when we consider the fact that God's people are in a place of captivity, they're in a land that's different, they're in a place that's different. Things are very different to them. And in one sense, and I just want to reference here, Jeremiah 29, 4, it speaks of how God carried his people from exile, from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the evil surrounds them. We can see that 
in actual fact, God gave that promise to them in the midst of captivity. And so it's this kind of, it's this beautiful paradox of an indestructible promise of hope is given in a place of captivity and suffering. I just think that that kind of, that's the point. It's somewhat paradoxical too that God is saying what he's saying while mm. he's sending them into Babylonian captivity. So I'm sending you into captivity, but it's because I know the thoughts that I think towards you, they're thoughts of peace and not of evil. So mm. wait a second, you're bringing evil upon me, but you don't have thoughts of evil towards me? How does this work out? Yeah. And I think ultimately when you look at the history of the nation, right, like they were incorrigible. Like they just were determined to continue to follow the ways of the surrounding nations. And they forsook their privileges as the covenant people of God, the ones who had his instruction, his laws, his guidance, his leadership. And so he's like, okay, you want to be like the Babylonians? You'll go to Babylon. Mm. You'll enjoy the miseries of Babylon. And so that's in fact what he did. So he's honoring their free will, letting them suffer the consequences of their actions. And I think it's fair to say, disciplining them and punishing them for their evils and injustices. Mm -hmm. And so the evil nation of Babylon is being used to punish Israel. And Babylon in its turn would be punished by the Medo-Persians, who would in their turn be punished by the Greeks, who would in their turn be punished by the Romans, who will eventually be punished by Jesus. But anyways, that's a different story. Mm -hmm. So he's sending you into captivity while he's promising you that he feels good about you and will always be there for you. And this is the paradox of parenting, where you do what's in the best interests of your kids long term, Mm -hmm. not short term. If you as a parent do what's in the best interests of your kids or what your kids want in the short term and what pleases them in the short term, you don't love them and you're not a good parent. You have to do the hard thing, the difficult thing, and that's to permit your children to suffer the consequences of their actions and set up boundaries and barriers and punish them when necessary so that you can awaken in them a sense of where they're really at and what they're really doing and the the internal consequences of bad choices. And so I think this is the paradox of parenting, and you see this in the story. And I wanted to just highlight something here too. It's from Job. and You see it in Job and you see it in Jeremiah's, the story of Jeremiah and the captivity of the Israelite nation. And that is that God seems to be taking responsibility for what's happening. And this, just Jeremiah, he says, I carried you, I sent you into Babylonian captivity. At the end of Second Chronicles, God says explicitly, I sent you there, as if he's like physically forcing them to go there. And, and in Job, God says to the devil, you forced me to turn my hand against Job. But his hand was not the active agent in causing Job suffering, but he takes responsibility for it. So I say that he takes responsibility for it because God, like I said before, permits what he doesn't approve of because he uses what he doesn't approve of in the context of the great controversy and in respecting free will to accomplish his ends in the end. So it's the devil couldn't be alive and exist without the sustaining power of God. So what Mm. life force sustains Satan's existence, God. So if God permits Satan to do it, he'll take responsibility for it as if he was the one doing it because he permitted it, even if he doesn't approve of it. But I would say, though, then to expand on that, Job was righteous. The Israelite nation wasn't. So God will permit suffering that he doesn't approve of, but he'll also permit consequences that he does approve of. You Mm. know what I'm saying? And so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you see a contrast there a bit between the Israelites and Job. Another point to make for this week's lesson and what we've been discussing is that when people or when God's people would go through those times of suffering, there's the element of trust to bring out too, is that we could very easily think, okay, God's bringing this upon us. He's permitting this to come upon us. Do I doubt his goodness then? Yeah. So it's such a good point to bring up, bro. And hope can be seen as a dangerous thing because it's real hard to deal with hope that's deferred and disappointed. Sometimes you wish you'd never hoped in a positive outcome when you don't 
achieve one. And so in order to really hope beyond your circumstances requires you to trust in God. And in order to trust in God, you have to be courageous and brave. So I would say that hope requires trust and trust requires courage. You have to be brave enough, courageous enough to trust in God because it's scary to trust because you're making yourself vulnerable to disappointment. But that's what hope requires. Like you have to do that if you're going to hope. And I want to say like that I don't believe it's possible for people to have indestructible hope in themselves. I think it's a gift from God. And ultimately, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's the one who had indestructible hope. And he gives that as a gift to anyone who will focus on him, fix their eyes upon him, and choose to partake of his divine nature. Because love hopes all things, it believes all things. I don't hope all things. I don't believe all things. I'm carnal, I'm fleshly, I'm weak, and I'm frail. And I do not have the ability to hope beyond hope. I can't do it. You can't do it. No one can do it. It's a it's myth. It's silly. The only way we can have indestructible hope is that we receive Christ's spirit and Christ's likeness in our experience. It's a gift from God, 1,000%. And I would mm-hmm. say every example you see in Scripture of a person or a group of people maintaining hope through horrible situations, it's because they are being sustained by the hope of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now, you mentioned, Matt, the disciplining that a parent would do to their child, and you're a parent of four right now. Four, four wow. kids, yeah. Wow. And, and I hope that they'll hope that my discipline is mm-hmm. for their ultimate good. Because right. Because it is. Yep. Now, I can recall when I was a school teacher, and there were times where, I guess to make this point stronger, that I would only ever want good for each student to succeed and to do well and to grow and learn and to be autonomous in the sense of not just being just a parrot of information, but to be able to function and live in this world. And so, but then there were times where a child might act out or something and then I'd have to discipline them. And it was interesting to observe. And as I reflect back on, there were times when they would say, what are you doing this for? They would then doubt. They would think now he's being mean to me now, whereas an hour ago he was letting us have extra free time or whatever. But yet I want to frame this. And as we bring our thoughts to a close today, Matt, Paul says in Hebrews 12 and verse 11, he speaks on the purpose and the end result of suffering, of discipline. And he says this, he says, now no chastening or discipline seems to be joyful for the present. And I think we can all relate to that from experience, like the chastening and the rebuking and the disciplining, it's never pleasant in the moment. But he goes on and says, but it's painful. Nevertheless, afterwards. So there's an afterward to the discipline. There's an afterward to the suffering we go through. And what I'm about to say, it's corny and cliche, but it's the idea of trusting the process, trust to the process of God's disciplining, or we could legitimately say, you know, what he's doing in and through us. Let me just interrupt there because you've got to ask the question in order to do that is, is the circumstance that I'm going through giving me the opportunity to be more like Jesus? That's it. And if you can say yes, you can, as Paul says, you can glory in your tribulations because you know I just wanted to just interject good. here, right? Like ask that question because most people are asking, they're just thinking, they're thinking, they're beginning and ending from this point. I want pleasure. I want comfort. I want personal satisfaction. I want good feelings, mm. really. And I wonder, do we want to be good or do we want to feel good? Because if we're eventually going to be made good, which will bring about much more good feelings in the end, we're going to have to allow ourselves to be put through processes that don't feel good. This is common sense. This is common knowledge and common wisdom. And yeah, so what you're referencing, it doesn't feel good in the present. Don't expect that life always has to feel good in the present. 
And that journeying with God is always going to feel good because it's not, but it'll make you good, mm-hmm. which will ultimately give you more capacity to feel good and have more hope and be closer to the kingdom and be more like Jesus. That's a good interjection. Thanks for that too. He goes on at the end of verse 11 there and he says, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is for people that train for certain things, whether it's to drive or to a sport or whatever it is, the training, the disciplining, it's never pleasant. Painful. You know, I, 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 resonate, I resonate with tennis. Like the coach might ask you to serve 200 times and you're like, but why? It's so that you can master it. And I, I just think this is incredible because God sees the end. This is a, this is a, this verse plays out similarly to Jeremiah 29, I want, 11. Brother, I right? want to give my kids all that they want. Nothing makes me happier than them being happy. Mm. and them showing me love and appreciation. But then they sit around having a day. It's all recreation. It's all fun. And mom's slaving away, dad's slaving away so that you can be blessed, so that you can enjoy life. And then I say, hey, buddy, can you pick up your underwear and take them to your bedroom? (laughs) Ah, dad! ah!" Wait a second. See, now this alerts me to the fact that I'm giving you way too much pleasure and it's destroying your character. It's making you a monster. And you can't understand that you're a monster. You can't even fathom as a child that you're a monster. You're a selfish, satanic monster. And I need to give you a life and a circumstance that brings out the best in you. You're not going to understand it fully because you're a child. And it's really all about humility and not being arrogant and not presupposing that we should always feel good because we're just the way we're supposed to be. Mm. Person- yeah, anyways, I just, that's just a great analogy. Hey, dude, before we end, I got to say Go this. Yeah. Because we were talking before and I was like, we got, we can't, I got it. This would be a really, guys, This is a deep and profound theological concept I'm going to share with you. And there'll be a couple theologians out there that are going to be able to acknowledge and see this. Everyone will see it, hopefully. I'll probably say it terribly, so. (laughs) I don't know what (laughs) you're about to say. Yeah, everybody will be like, ah, that was dumb. We don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) But we were talking before, and I just brought this up, and it was new to me, this new thought. But in 1 Peter 4, he says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as some strange thing happened or some odd thing happened. But rejoice in as much as you become a partaker of Christ's suffering. So when you suffer, you're becoming a partaker of something that Jesus Christ has already had to endure, right? His was a life of suffering. It's more agonizing than any suffering that any human being's ever endured. And, that, and he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And the glory that he showed us on the cross is the glory that he shared with the Father since the beginning. And so I believe that the crucifixion of God began as soon as this sin problem arose. Because to an infinitely sensitive and loving being, being lied about, misrepresented by those who you love more than your own existence, purely, totally selflessly, is going to be a crucifixion. It's going to be a terrible crucifixion. It's going to be stripped open and humiliated and spat upon and all that stuff. So what happens on the cross with Jesus is a physical, earthly manifestation of what Jesus' heart and mind and what God's heart and mind has been going through since the first time he was assaulted on an emotional level with words and bad ideas, yeah, or wrong ideas. So like God has always been suffering and sin causes suffering. And so when we suffer as human beings, we're entering into that. Like we're just entering into God's experience and he's with us and he's not exempt from it. And so I think that's a comforting thought for me. I'm just now getting into what God's always been into. I'm suffering with the Lord and it's gonna make me better. So anyways, yeah, we gotta stop, bro. No, Matt, that's good. I hope that you've enjoyed 
yeah, thanks for coming on and yeah, discussing the pure gold commentary. Amen. Yeah, look, it's good, and we do have this hope, this indestructible hope that God's given us. And look, that's that that brings us to to the end of our discussion for today. But know that the suffering, the trials, the disciplining that that we're going through, it's working to an end that being the peaceable fruit of righteousness that we would be remade into the image of god that we would be sons and daughters of god yeah and so that that's an incredible thought for us to finish with amen god bless guys thanks for joining us this week and thanks Forbes. thanks man thanks for listening to this week's episode if you like the conversation tell your friends you can subscribe on spotify apple podcast or wherever you are listening right now Sabbath School Quarterly Commentary is a production of the Sabbath School Department of the North New South Wales Conference. This week's episode was produced by Henrique Felix and Morgan Vincent. That's it. We'll see you next week.